This morning is in Paul's letter, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. Would you turn there with me? 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. Hear now the words of the living and true God. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Open our minds, illuminate your word so that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have understood. So, Father, that in nothing we may be displeasing unto your majesty. We pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I think if we're honest as Christians, we are probably more familiar with the letters of the New Testament than probably any other part of Scripture. Uh, we love all of it. We're Bible people, but, but we especially love the letters, um, or, or what is sometimes called the epistles, which is just a fancy way of saying letters, but it sounds really cool and academic. But, but my guess is, is out of the people that actually memorize scripture, which, which is a different sermon, most of, you have, of what you have memorized is probably from the letters of the New Testament, right? Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, the letters to Timothy, Peter's letters, John's letters. We love them. And there's good reason for that. Uh, although some parts of the letters are, are hard to understand, They are the theology of the New Testament applied to people's lives. They they are taking the theology, the gospel of Jesus, what we have in the gospels, and and working it into the life of the church and the lives of individuals. So they often tell us, here's what you should believe, here's what you should do because of that, and here's what you shouldn't do because of that. Now, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but that's the reason why we love the letters of the New Testament. They are a great gift from God, but even... Within the letters of the New Testament, there are certain parts that we kind of just skip by or, or skim through. 
We looked at one of those last week when we spent some time reflecting on Paul's greeting in, in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. And this week we're going to pause and look deeply into uh, Paul's thanksgiving to the Thessalonians in verses 2 through 10. And Paul does the same thing in 1 Thessalonians that he does in almost all of his letters. He begins with kind of an extended thanksgiving. The only time he doesn't do this is with the Galatians because he's very upset by some of the things that are going on in that church. And, and this is the custom of the day. This is just how you wrote letters. So Paul's not inventing anything here. But again, because this is Paul's thanks, here's why I'm thankful for the Thessalonian church. We can often skim through this like, well, okay, what does that have to do with me, right? Sounds almost like it wouldn't apply to us on the surface. We're not the Thessalonian church. But it does apply. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter knowing it would be read aloud to the gathering of believers in Thessalonica. He wrote it not only to encourage them, but to teach them by example how they should think and what their faith should look like. And just as the Thessalonian believers would have picked up on, what, on Paul's example, so can we. God has taught me a lot in this text this week, and I believe he has much for us this morning. So the first thing I want to do is to summarize, the, the kind of summarize this whole text, verses 2 through 10, in one sentence. So, so if you kind of summarize the whole thing, here's what Paul is saying. I am thankful to God that he is at work in your church, and I am confident that God is at work in your church. I am thankful that God is at work in your church, and I am confident that God is at work in your church. You could even say, I am thankful that God is at work in your church because I am confident that he is at work in your church. And so we're going to kind of break the text into two sections like that this morning. Paul's gratitude and Paul's confidence. Paul's gratitude and Paul's confidence. And we'll, we'll deal with those in turn. And, and my prayer is that we will learn and that God will use this beautiful paragraph to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. So first, Paul's gratitude. Well, first, one of the things that we can observe from this text is that thanksgiving is to be a constant and regular part of the Christian's prayer life. Thanksgiving is to be a constant and regular part of the Christian's prayer life. Another way to say that would be thankfulness or gratefulness or gratitude should be the heart posture of a Christian. When you, when you read through the letters of the New Testament, one thing that is clear, and if you've never done this, this is a great time, is that thanksgiving is almost always mentioned when prayer is mentioned. So much so that, that every time the word prayer comes off the Apostle Paul's pen or quill or whatever they used to write back then, the, the word thanksgiving comes off at the same time. They're almost interchangeable. To pray is to give thanks to God and vice versa. But I, I think we've kind of distanced those two in our, in our minds in our modern time. When we, when we often we think of prayer, the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the word prayer is probably what we would call supplication or what do I need to ask God for? What, what can I ask God to do? Who do I need to pray for that God would do something in their life? And, and obviously, that is a good thing to do. But it's interesting that that's the first thing that comes to our mind. I wonder if the first thing that would come to Paul's mind is what do I have to thank God for? We are constantly 
we are, we are told, we are shown to constantly give thanks to God in prayer for what he is doing in our lives, but even more for what he is doing in the lives of others. Look again at verse 2. Look at the wording Paul uses. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So how often does Paul give thanks for the Thessalonian church? Always. He always gives thanks for them. How often does he mention them in his prayers? Constantly, repeatedly. And what does this mean for us? It means that thanksgiving to God should be a pattern and a habit of our hearts and of our prayer lives. Always and constantly. It doesn't mean that you don't do anything else. But it means it's a regular pattern of your life. Thankfulness to God is the pattern and the heart posture of a healthy Christian life. Thankfulness to God is the posture of a healthy Christian heart. This is Paul's example here in verse 2, but it's also his direct command towards the end of 1 Thessalonians. You just flip over a couple pages to 1 Thessalonians 5.17. This is what he says. Pray without ceasing, which is the same word used in our verse here. Pray without ceasing. Pray constantly, you could say. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So again, there you see prayer and and thanksgiving mentioned side by side. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Well, one of the things it means is to give thanks in all circumstances. You often hear people ask the question, I want to know what God's will for my life is. Well, Here is one of the things that scripture tells us is God's will for your life. Habitual, intentional, prayerful thanksgiving. This is God's will for you. By the grace of God, we should all be striving to cultivate thankful hearts. Gratitude must be the posture of our hearts. Thanksgiving to God must be the regular pattern of our prayer life. Always and constantly, Paul says. But, but what is the content of his thankfulness? He doesn't just tell them, hey, I give thanks for you a lot. I'm thankful for you. In other words, what is Paul thankful for about the Thessalonian church? He's very specific. Another way to ask the question would be, how do we cultivate thanksgiving in our lives? So we're supposed to be thankful. Okay, how do we do that? Well, to answer all these questions, there's a principle here. We have to value what God values. We have to value what God values. In other words, we have to have the same priorities that God has. We we must be on the lookout for what God is doing in the world. To put it in biblical language from Paul in Romans 8, our minds must be set on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. We must be thankful for the types of things that the Bible tells us to be thankful for. And to be thankful for them, we must value what the Bible values, what God values. You could even kind of flip this on its head. How do you know what you value? Well, what do you give thanks for? It's kind of a circle, you can see. One author put it this way, and this is kind of one of those, this this stings a little bit. It, It did for me the first time I read it. He says this, our thank you list is like the dipstick of a car. It is a gauge of what lies hidden in the heart. Our our thank you list is like a dipstick of a car. It is a gauge of what lies hidden in the heart. What are you thankful for? 
what can you think of that God has done that you are thankful for? That is a helpful way to see where your heart is at. Well, let's see what Paul is thankful for about the Thessalonian church. He is thankful, essentially and generally, that God is at work among them. Look at verse 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Here we go. Remembering before our God and Father. So that's prayer language. Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So so looking with earthly eyes, with worldly eyes, with, with fleshly eyes, however you want to phrase it, at the Thessalonian church, there wasn't much to give thanks for. You might remember last week, the Thessalonian church was under constant persecution and threat. The city hated them. Paul had been chased out of Thessalonica by the Jews. But looking with the eyes of faith, with the priorities of God, Paul sees a great work happening among them by the power of God. Paul sees their work produced by faith. Paul sees their labor motivated by their love, and Paul sees their endurance that is fueled by their hope in Christ, the Lord of all. Paul sees that God is working powerfully among them. Faith, hope, and love, that the cardinal Christian virtues are blossoming in the Thessalonian congregation in the midst of a great persecution. This is the work of God. Paul can see that, and so he's thankful. But again, this this whole section, all of these verses here, 2 through 10, is is a thanksgiving. It's what Paul's thankful for. So so Paul is thankful for a lot more. He he is thankful that they are loved and chosen by God in verse 4. He's thankful that the gospel came to them in power, not in mere words. He's thankful that they are enduring in the midst of persecution. And he's thankful that they've become an example to the believers in all the regions around them. Ultimately, Paul is thankful that God's initial work and God's continued work among them. To put it another way, Paul is is thankful to God that they had believed and that they are still believing. See, see, Paul's priorities are are gospel priorities. This is what he's looking at when he looks at the church. Paul values what the Lord values. Paul views the world through the lens of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He views the world through the cross of Christ. This is the secret. This is the fuel for the flame that is Paul's thankfulness. This is what causes Paul's overflowing, never-ceasing thankfulness. And by the way, if you look in Philippians, this is the secret to Paul's unshakable contentment in Christ. And you might look at something like this, Hear the words, give thanks in in all circumstances. And you might naturally have the question, but but Dustin, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand my circumstance, my, my life, how terrible it is, my suffering, how hard it is. And none of this is to dismiss any of that. But but that's missing the point. This gratitude, this thankfulness does not exclude suffering. It is not circumstantial. The Thessalonians are suffering. Many of them have lost money. We saw that in the book of Acts. 
according to later in 1 Thessalonians, some of them might have been actually martyred. We don't know. They are suffering. And Paul even starts the second letter to the Thessalonians, which happened later, with they are still under persecution. And if anyone knows suffering, the Apostle Paul knows suffering. He's beaten within an inch of his life multiple times. He's chased out of cities. He's thrown into prison. He goes without food for days. He's falsely accused. He's shipwrecked three times. He's hated. False teachers try to corrupt the churches he's planted. His closest friends desert him. And yet Paul is constantly thankful when his life stinks in the eyes of the world. Again, why? Because his value, his treasure, his worth is in Jesus Christ. And that is not shaken by any of those things. Messiah Jesus is his priority and the mission of the Lord Jesus is his priority. Is the gospel advancing, Paul would ask? Yes, I have plenty to give thanks for. Are people growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ in Thessalonica, even though they are under great persecution? Yes, Paul, then, then I have an infinite number of reasons to be thankful to God. Enough to be constantly giving thanks. Enough to always be giving thanks in the midst of the worst physical circumstances. Paul will continue giving thanks to God constantly until his head is separated from his body by a Roman executioner. Now again, this, this doesn't mean that Paul's just happy-go-lucky. That's not what he's saying. Not at all. And if you read his letters, you'll know that he's all over the map as far as how he's feeling. He gets anxious for his churches, we'll see later in Thessalonians. He gets angry in Galatians, rightfully so. This is not someone who's ignoring reality, but it's someone whose worth is in Jesus Christ. I don't know your situation. I don't know what pains you suffer. I don't know what grieves your heart. But I do know this, that in all circumstances, if you look with the eyes of faith, there are an infinite number of things to be thankful for in Jesus Christ. And if you find in yourself a, a lack of thankfulness, a, a lack of gratitude towards God, if you, if you find in your heart complaining, grumbling, a, a why me attitude, it's a serious issue. It's a gospel issue. It means there, there's something wrong with how you're looking at the world. Your, your mind is somehow set on the things of this earth and on the things of God. It's so easy to get there, isn't it? It's so easy to forget. We've all been there. This is, this is why we constantly need to immerse ourselves in the Word and the Holy Spirit to constantly work in our hearts to remind us and to constantly reprioritize things. This is why we need to constantly remind each other of the truths of God's word. This is why we need to be in the church and in fellowship. Because when one of us forgets, another reminds. It's through prayer and the study of Holy Scripture that God brings our hearts and minds into alignment with his will. It is through this that the Holy Spirit takes our eyes off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, and puts them on Jesus Christ. If you're finding a lack of gratefulness in your heart, 
examine your own heart. Are you looking at earthly things? Are you looking at your circumstances? Or are you looking are you looking to Christ? Are you looking to the spiritual realities that are revealed to us in Scripture? The solution is, is to look to Christ. Look to Christ, what He's done, what He's given us, what He has, and what we will eventually receive to be filled with thanks to God. Paul is thankful for the Thessalonian church. Paul gives thanks to God because of his work among them. Christian, thanksgiving and prayer must be a regular pattern in your life as well. That is Paul's gratitude. So, so next, let's, let's look at Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence. So Paul is confident. He says, we know that God is at work among the Thessalonians. But he puts it in even more striking language than that. He actually writes next that he is sure that God loves the Thessalonian church and that the Thessalonians are chosen by God, or elect is, is one way to translate the Greek there. He says in verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He has chosen you. Paul knows, he's confident that the Thessalonian church is loved by God and they have been chosen. And, and he doesn't just mean loved because God loves everybody. That's not what he's talking about here. These two things are connected. They are loved by God. They have been chosen. It's a different way of saying the same thing. And of course, this brings up all sorts of theological questions. Much ink has been spilled over verses like this through the years. But, but our concern this morning is simply this. Well, what is Paul getting at here? And I want to kind of give two quick disclaimers before we, we delve into this. this. This is not a sermon on the doctrine of election. Obviously, we're dealing with it here, but, but this is not a full-orbed biblical theology of election. That would absolutely be worthy of our time. That's not what this text is about. So this is kind of going to skim the surface a bit, and we'll probably leave you with more questions and things like that, and that's okay. I would encourage you to to get into your Bible. And obviously, I'd love to get together and talk with you if you have questions about what we talked about this morning. That's the first disclaimer. Number two, believing in election, as our text says here, or predestination, as it's talked about in other texts, or God's choosing, whatever you want to call it, is not an option for a Bible-believing Christian. It's not that some people believe God elects, and some people believe he doesn't. The Bible clearly teaches it. And the Bible is the inerrant word of God. It says God elects people. So it's not a question of whether or not you believe in it. It's a question of what it means. I hope that makes sense. I've, I've had conversations with people before, Christians. I don't believe in predestination. Well, Paul uses that word. So what do you think it means is the question. And that's where the differences happen. Okay, so, the biblical doctrine of election. What is this word? What does it mean that God's chosen the Thessalonians? How does Paul know that? How is this connected to God's love? Well, the doctrine of election is this. The idea, basically, that God chooses sinners to be saved and then provides for their salvation. So, God chooses 
sinners to be saved and then provides for their salvation. In other words, if you are saved, if your faith is in Christ, why? Because you chose God or because God chose you? But when you look at Scripture and what it has to say about election, the answer is those who are saved ultimately is because God has chosen them. First John, we love because he first loved us. Salvation, in other words, is all a work of God's sovereign grace. Just as God chose Israel from among the nations of the world, God chooses his church from among the people of the world. Let, let, me, let me show you this in a couple places in Scripture that make this clear. And, and what you want to look for in these Scriptures is who is doing the action? Who is the subject of verbs concerning salvation in the Bible? Well, let, let's look at 2 Thessalonians. So here's, here's the Thessalonians. Let's look at what Paul writes to the Thessalonians in his second letter, chapter 2, verse 13, where this is, this is a, another way of saying the exact same thing, and I think you'll see the, the, the similarities here. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says this, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, very similar, because God chose you, same Greek word, as the first fruits to be saved. So God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now again, we're not going to go into all the depths of all these scriptures, but I hope you can see the connection. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. In other words, he sanctified you in the Spirit. He set you apart and belief in the truth. That is how God chose you to be saved. Romans 8.31. Here we see the word elect again. Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, we're going to find out who the us is later. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is the us? Paul clarifies, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Same word as in our passage in 1 Thessalonians. God's chosen ones. It is God who justifies. See the same thing? In Acts 13, 48, again, listen to the language that Luke uses here in the book of Acts. Acts 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Similar type of language there, similar type of language. So, so these texts are clear, but the, the next natural question is, well, Wait a minute, if God's chosen some people for salvation, then like when did that when, when does that happen? The Bible's clear on this question as well. And the answer, as mind-boggling as this may be, it is a great mystery, is before the world was even created. Second Timothy 1:9, Paul writes this: Who saved us? Sorry, it's not a question. This is this is what happens when you kind of have to take little verses. Speaking of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. So he saved us, he called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. Why then? So it's not because of anything we've done. Why did he call us? Why did he save us? Again, notice the verb. He saved us. 
but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. What are you talking about, Paul? That's mind-boggling. He gave us in Christ Jesus. He gave us a calling, and he saved us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's mind-boggling. Probably the, the clearest place in Scripture that, that teaches that it's before the foundation of the world is Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, the whole thing is a great explanation of all this. We don't have time to read the whole thing. But let's just look at verses 3 through 6 in Ephesians chapter 1. 3 through 6. Listen to how Paul uses the language here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen. Even as he chose us, there's our, our word, key word there, same word as elect. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, when before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. How's that connected with God's love? Next verse. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. That, that is election in a nutshell. And again, I, this is not a full biblical theology that might raise more questions than it answers. I just want you to see in scripture how this language is used in the Bible. God the Father, out of his love, notice the connection with our passage, Brothers be loved by God, Paul says. Out of his love, love and election are always connected, chooses a people for himself. And again, there's a lot more to talk about on the subject, a lot more. Many more passages, many more questions. All that to say, the doctrine is a thoroughly biblical doctrine. Now, now let's go back to our text. How, how did Paul know that the Thessalonians were chosen by God? In other words, loved by God. And really the question we want to know is, how do I know? that I've been chosen by God. And so to kind of classify this and think through the rest of, of Paul's thanksgiving, I'm going to kind of work through five marks of election in this passage. Five marks of election for the Thessalonian church and then extrapolate it out for us today. Well, the first one, and I think everyone agrees on this, true faith in the gospel message. True faith in the gospel message. Verses 4 and 5, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Some translations say full assurance, um, boldness. That's kind of the idea there. So, so a sermon in and of itself is just words. Someone can say, I believe in Jesus. Those are just words, right? But if the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of people, it's powerful. And, and that's what Paul's saying. When, when Paul, Silas, and Timothy preached the gospel message, and, and if you want to get a reminder of exactly what they were preaching, you can go back to Acts chapter 17. Essentially, the message is, Jesus is the Messiah. He suffered and died on a cross, and he rose again on the third day, and now he's Lord of all. Some people came to faith. 
So they preached that message in the synagogue for three weeks, it says at least. People came to faith. Acts 17 says this, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Some people received the gospel message when Paul preached in Thessalonica. They believed what Paul was telling them. They came to faith in Christ. Namely, they believed that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament was talking about. That he suffered and rose again from the dead. Some received the message, but not all. You'll remember back to last week, Acts chapter 17 again. The Jews started a riot. A riot. Because they hated this message. They hated the message of Messiah Jesus. And in the face of that overwhelming persecution, the apostles preached boldly. And what Paul's saying is, that is the Holy Spirit at work. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. All of it. The fact that they came to faith when he preached, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The fact that the apostles had the boldness to preach in the midst of that persecution, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It didn't always happen when Paul preached. Think about it. It's the Apostle Paul, right? It's got to be like the greatest evangelist of all time. But oftentimes when he'd preach, he'd get chased out of town with not a single believer. How does he know that the Thessalonian church is chosen and loved by God? They came to faith when he preached the gospel. A church or a person who is elect will receive and accept the gospel. That's the first mark of election here in 1 Thessalonians. Number two, true faith repents of sin and idolatry. True faith repents of sin and idolatry. So skip down to verse 9. Here's what he says of the Thessalonian church. For they, or if, well, he's kind of talking about the other churches. For they themselves, the churches in Macedonia and Achaia that Paul was in contact with, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. In other words, he says, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So the Thessalonian church received the apostles when they came. They received the gospel. And because of that, they turned from their sinful idols to God. They, they took their idols, they threw them in the trash, and they came to faith in Christ. And, and, and don't mistake this. This is both physical. Like they had physical idols. Um, not many of us have those today, at least in that sense. But it's also ideological. So it's not like they just took their, I don't know what gods they had in Thessalonica, their, their, their Zeus doll and threw it in the trash. And then, well, I believe in Jesus now, and let me just put a little Jesus idol. That's not what's happening. They're getting rid of their physical idols, but also their entire religious belief system that they had grown up in. And now they came to faith in Christ Jesus. And, and I think, I don't know if we can fully understand that, how radical that was, to be a part of society back then was to be a part of the religion of the day. To, to make your crops grow, you didn't use extra fertilizer. You went to the fertility cult and did the things that you do in the fertility cult, which we won't speak about. And don't use your imagination. Jeez. The point is, to not participate in that was to not participate in society. So, so they're not just getting rid of their physical idols. They, they got rid of all their ideological idols. They turned from idolatry and turned to faith in Christ. They turned from their systems of thought they had been taught, that they had embraced, and instead embraced Christ 
his lordship. They repudiated everything about their former way of life, their former way of spirituality, their former thoughts on morality, especially sexual morality. And we'll see that later in 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonica was like a Las Vegas of the day. You can understand why the people of the city didn't like them. But, but what I want you to see here is, do you understand that this is, this is necessary to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Don't for a second get fooled into thinking that just because we're enlightened 21st century Western individuals that we don't have idols, that we are not idolaters. What are the things that we bow to? Money, security, safety, political parties, sex, personal preferences, comfort, success, independence, freedom, entertainment even. When you come to the faith, when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you turn from all those things. You turn from thinking about them the way the world thinks about them. You put on the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the lens of the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that dictates how you think about everything. That, that is what it means that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Hebrews puts it this way, they turned from dead works to serve the living and true God. Repentance. That's what repentance is. Turning away from and a turning to. That is one of the marks we see of someone who has true faith in God. Someone who has been chosen, as Paul says in this text. Number three is this. True faith produces evidence. True faith produces evidence. Verses six and seven of chapter one. And you, the Thessalonian church, you all, it's plural, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word, again, word is a, another way of saying the gospel. You received the gospel, the word, in much affliction. How did they receive it? With the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. In other words, their faith was not just an empty profession. They accepted the gospel in the midst of severe suffering and affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So much so that they became examples to all the believers in the region. That's evidence of true saving faith right there. There, there was a buzz going about the churches in the region. Did you hear what happened in Thessalonica? They received the gospel even though Everyone was against them. Even though Paul got chased out of town and there were riots, they stood firm and believed the message. That's evidence of true saving faith. True faith produces evidence. There's no other explanation for what happened. These brand new believers on day one were suffering for their faith in Christ Jesus. And they are doing it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The joy of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is how Christ suffered. That's why Paul says, you became imitators of the Lord. They were persecuted. This is how the apostles suffered. Paul says, you're, you're just like me. I suffer for the gospel all the time. This is how believers suffer. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the clear evidences that God is at work in their midst. There's no natural explanation for it. They received persecution with joy. In the midst of what Paul says, much affliction, 
They had great joy that, that like the apostles, they had been counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. See, because like the apostle Paul, they, they viewed the world through the lens of the gospel. But that's not the only way that the Spirit is at work. So that's one of the evidences that their faith has produced. But, but there's more. Look, look back at verse 3. Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what their faith is producing? Their belief. This is evidence of election. Evidence that God has chosen them. Evidence that they truly believe the gospel. When the rubber meets the road, their faith is producing work. In other words, uh, that could be a lot of things. Work towards each other. Probably here in this context, their work is enduring affliction. That their love is motivating them to action on each other's behalf. And their hope in Christ Jesus is enabling them to endure or to, as the ESV says, be steadfast. It's fueling their steadfastness. All of that to say, what, what Paul is saying is here is, I'm thankful that your faith is the real deal. How do I know? Look, your faith is producing, your love is producing, your hope in Jesus is producing. It's not just an empty profession. They aren't just saying they believe, and then when persecution comes, I'm done. They're steadfast. They aren't just saying their faith is in Jesus, but when it comes time to put that into action, no, I don't do that. They don't just say they love one another, but when, it comes, when that becomes costly, nah, I'm, I'm out. All of this is evidence. Now, now, now don't mishear me. I'm not, I'm not saying that we are saved by our works. Not at all. Not even close. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But, as Martin Luther famously said, the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, true saving faith in Messiah Jesus is always accompanied by evidence in one's life. Faith produces action, love produces labor, and hope produces steadfastness. True faith in Christ Jesus is, is not merely an intellectual assent or, or a words that you say with your mouth. It's a reality in the heart. The Holy Spirit works powerfully. Paul saw that in the Thessalonian church by their actions. Number four, true faith spreads. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. This is, I believe, in fulfillment to the passage we read in Isaiah. Survivors will go forth to all nations. This is very similar to the previous point. Their faith in Jesus, how does Paul know it's real? Because it's not staying contained. It has spread. They have proclaimed the gospel in their region and others. People are hearing stories. They have done what Paul, Silas, and Timothy were doing. Where Paul says, I, I don't even have anything to say about that. I'm just left speechless. They had done this so well, Paul says, we have nothing more to add. This is, this is a mark that the Thessalonian believers had actually believed the gospel, the good news. By, by its very nature, if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news what gospel means, right? You would want other people to know that. If you believe some item of good news, really, 
you would want other people to know. And just as a side note, it's often said, if you believe in the doctrine of election, then what's the point of evangelism, right? We should ask the Apostle Paul, the most prolific church planner to ever exist. Paul, if you believe salvation is all of God's doing, then, then why are you out there risking your neck? God's going to save him anyway, right? It's a natural question, an understandable question, a logical question. Paul gives us an answer here in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, therefore, I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So, the Bible says that, that God chooses people, God elects people. The Bible says, proclaim the gospel to all people. Paul is a living example of this, and we believe all of that. Yes. Does God choose people? Yes. Should we proclaim the gospel to all people? Yes. That's what Paul's doing. That's what the Thessalonians are doing. The proclamation of the gospel by God's people is the means he uses to bring them to salvation. The Thessalonian church was great evidence of this. And Paul takes joy in that. The fifth mark is this. True faith endures. True faith endures. The last and final mark in this passage, there's, again, there's other places in the scripture that have other things to say. The Thessalonian believers are still there. That, that's how Paul knows that they're, they're elect. They have endured and they are still believing. True faith is enduring faith. True faith is persevering faith. Jesus himself said this. Matthew 24. We'll get to in a year, maybe, I think. Uh, which I'm excited for, by the way. Um, Jesus says this in 24:13 of Gospels, Matthew's Gospel. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The, the one who truly believes the gospel will suffer all things for the gospel. Again, not to earn anything, but out of their belief and trust in God. God preserves and keeps hold of his people. And again, this is not our doing, but the very grace of God. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What a beautiful comforting passage for the one whose faith is in Christ Jesus. Jesus will never lose you. Never. No one is able to snatch you from his hand. True faith is enduring faith. Not because of how strong we are, but because of how strong Christ is. True faith endures because it's a gift from God and God preserves that faith until the end. He is faithful. No one can thwart God's love. So, so here is the question for us. The, the truth is that, that none of us measure up perfectly to these things. That, that's not the point. We all have areas of our lives that we fail in. 
we all still have what Paul calls the body of sin, the flesh that, that just entangles us at times. We are weak at times. We fail at times. God knows that. That's why he keeps us. If left, <laughs> I forget who said it. Someone said, if I was able to lose my salvation, I would. I believe that. God preserves us. But let us examine our hearts in light of God's great grace this morning and repent together. Now, now I don't want to soften it too much because if you, if you look at this list and, and, and you call yourself a believer, you profess to be a believer, but, but none of it just matches up to your life at all, I'm concerned for you. It's very possible that you've, you've never truly understood and believed the gospel so, so what's the answer? Put your faith in Jesus Christ and come to him. Come to him in faith. Turn, turn from your idols like the Thessalonians and embrace Christ by faith. Give, give your life to him. It doesn't matter if this is your first time in church or if you've been going to church for 50 years. If your faith is not in Jesus, today is the day to put that faith in him. I don't wait. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And maybe if you're just confused, you're not sure, my encouragement to you would be to come talk to one of us. This week, next week, we'd love to talk with you and help you walk through these issues, to pray with you through these issues. This is not the type of thing, well, if you don't match up, then you can just, the door's right there, buddy. That's not what this is about at all. It's like a check engine light on a car. If, if this, this is just completely absent in your life, then let's have a conversation. We want to help. We want to pray with you. There are many things that, that we do as pastors that we have to do, but this is not one of them. This is one of the things we love to do. We would love to talk with you and pray through these things. Because, because here's the deal. This is, this, is not, this is not a game. This is not a, uh, just a, a nice thing. Paul reminds us here at the end of our passage, a day of judgment is coming. A day of God's holy and righteous wrath poured out upon sin and all those who have rejected Messiah Jesus. It's coming. This is a reality. Those who are in Christ will be delivered by Christ from this judgment. Those who are outside of Christ will not. So, so don't play around with this. If you're not sure not something to be ashamed about. It's, it's something to pray about, something to, to, to wrestle with God about. It's something to talk to someone about. Paul says this in verses 9 and 10. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is only one way of deliverance from that wrath that is coming. And his name is Jesus Christ. Come to him in faith this morning. Salvation, the Bible tells us, is available to all who will come to Christ in faith. Come, come. You see, Paul was not originally sure that the Thessalonians were chosen by God. We'll see this later in 1 Thessalonians. He says, I didn't know what was happening with you, right? He had left the city in a storm. He had left the city, and in his rearview mirror, he sees these brand new believers, this, this group of brand new believers, 
and a city that is in an uproarious riot out of their hatred for them. He was worried. He didn't know what the fate of the church would be. He didn't know if his labor would be in vain, if they would fall to temptation, he says later in 1 Thessalonians. He was anxious for their faith. So he sends Timothy to encourage them and to find out how they're doing. Timothy comes back to Paul and reports to Paul how they're doing. And then Paul writes this letter. Timothy had reported to Paul, Paul, the Thessalonians are standing strong. In the midst of much affliction, they're enduring with joy in Christ Jesus. And in fact, their faith is spreading. Their faith was, was an enduring faith. Their, their faith, faith was a spreading faith. Their faith was producing the fruits of the Spirit by the power and grace of God. God was at work among them. And that's what caused Paul's heart to overflow in thanksgiving to God. Why? Because it's all a work of God's sovereign grace. God receives all the thanks and all the credit and all the glory for the flourishing of the church in Thessalonica. And by extension, God receives all of the glory and all of the thanks and all of the credit for the flourishing of our church here and of over our lives as well. That is what drives a heart of thankfulness. It's it's a biblical view of life that is totally submitted to God's sovereign grace. This produces in the heart an overflow of thanksgiving to God. So if God is working in your life, if God has worked in your life, turn to him in prayer and give him thanks constantly and always. God is at work. I hate asking questions like that. God is at work in this church. How should we respond? Constantly and always giving him thanks. And if God has not worked in your life, if you haven't seen it, you want that. You hear this and you want this faith. You want this Jesus. Turn to him in prayer. Ask him for help. Cry for mercy. Ask for salvation. Ask him to give you the faith that you desire. He is faithful. He will surely do it. I want to end with a short verse from John 6. The words of Jesus that clarify this and beautifully balance these truths. Jesus said this, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Would you come this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your word. We are so thankful that when we are straying, you preserve us. We are so thankful that when we are weak, you are strong. We are so thankful that when we were dead in sin, not seeking after you, you sought after us. And you sent your son for us out of your great love for us. Father, would you nourish our faith with these truths this morning? Would you assure those who are weak in faith this morning that you love them, that you are holding them, and that no one will ever be able to snatch them out of your hand? Father, would you give us thankful hearts this morning for those whose whose eyes are caught up in earthly things, earthly concerns, Father, would you lift their eyes to Jesus Christ?
Savior. Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would give them the faith they need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring them into your body this morning. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.